Uh, loads on the radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. So I always have great respect for Dublin Bus and for yeah. the, the, the drivers and that. So, yeah, but I never in my wildest dreams thought I could drive a double-decker bus. Okay, so and, let, But I am. And where are you from originally, can I ask? I'm from Syria originally. I'm so sorry what's happened to your country. And you've no family whatsoever, Mustafa? No, no, I have no family here. I'm only alone since I come to Ireland. Mustafa, do you mind if I ask you, are your parents still alive? No. I, no. They did. They died in 2012. In the Syrian conflict? Yeah. You look at that fella, Benji! Yes, ma'am. What are you knocking yourself up for? I just thought you were supposed to be going into Kilkenny. Well, so I am. Well, will you come here and get yourself cleaned up for heaven's sake? And we'll start here on the live line. And a conversation about a stolen electric bike ended up with the extraordinary life story that starts in war-torn Syria for young Mustafa. And the full-page ad in uh, independent newspapers today for electric bikes, uh, beginning at 4,995, reduced to 4,195. That's the fuel fluid S pedadelic. The Veloci Sport is 1,600 euro. The Veloci Hopper fold- foldable, all electric bikes, 1,600 euro. And the Veloci Step Through is a 1,500 euro. They are very, very valuable. And that's why it seems, I think, there is an organised group at the minute robbing these, stealing these uh, electric bikes. Mustafa is in Carrick Mines in South Dublin. Mustafa, good afternoon. Good afternoon, how are you? Good. Well, I'm so sorry this has happened to you, Mustafa, because your electric bike was your livelihood, it was your work. Yes. And what happened? Uh, on Friday, I just uh, got an order and just eat in, in McDonald's. Yeah. Then uh, I take my order. Then I got other one and uh, Burger King. Okay. Then I wanted the Burger King. I bought my bike inside. Then I uh, I bought my bike inside. I uh, then I, the guest tried to, to give me the order. Then I said to her, just to give me a minute. I just I go to the toilet. Then I come back. Okay. I went to the toilet. Then I come back. I look for my bike. I my bike is gone. I got it. I, I said I said to myself, yeah. maybe I bought I bought just outside or something like maybe I don't know, but I am sure I bought it inside in the restaurant. Then I check outside around no. Then I asked the girl, she looking for my bike. Oh. Then she said to me, someone that steal your bike and he running away from the left side. So it was just, do you reckon the guy that's, and it is a, a man because you can see, in fairness to Burger King, they have the CCTV footage, yeah. in fairness to them. You can see that it is a man. This is the CCTV that's gone to the guardie. But do you reckon he was following you, Mustafa, or he just saw the bike, realised it was an electric bike, realised they're worth up to five grand, uh, average around two grand, two thousand. Do you real? Do you think he was following you, or do you think he was just an opportunist? No, he, before he steal my bike, he before he steal my bike when I wasn't at, at at McDonald's, he was also at McDonald's. Before he steal my bike one minute ago, okay. he tried to use the toilet in McDonald's, ah. but the toilet it was locked. Then he come back. Then he come back. Then I went to the Burger King, yeah. but he come back on Burger King. But he when he was in Burger King, he was watching me. Yeah. He yeah. looked like when, uh, when from the video because when he was looking in the left side, I was only standing the left side. Then after that, I went to the toilet. Yeah. 
So you were, yeah. go- you were gone for less than a minute and he whipped the bike and took off. Yeah, he did. He just to make sure me, I'm not in Burger. He just to make sure I'm not uh, see him and he go outside the Burger King. Then he come back, then he take the bike and okay. go. Okay. So you reckon he was... He was tracking you. He was following yeah, you. Yeah, yes, uh-huh. yeah. Because Burger King and McDonald's is close, like only yeah. one hundred meter between them. Yeah, yeah. And and Mustafa, how much did you pay for the electric bike? I just I used to get a loan from the bank from AIB Bank to buy this bike. Yeah. You know, and uh, when I got the loan, I I bought this bike for uh, one thousand euro. Wow. And Joe asked Mustafa when he came to Ireland. I came to Ireland in December 2013. And I know you're now an Irish citizen. Yeah, I got an Irish citizen. Congratulations, well done. Thanks. Um, and where are you from originally, can I ask? I'm from Syria originally. Oh, God. I'm so sorry that what's happened to your country. I'm so sorry what's happened to your country. And you've no family whatsoever, Mustafa? No, no, I have no family here. I'm only alone since I come to Ireland. And what age were you when you came to Ireland? I came to Ireland, uh, I'm the moment I'm 25, you know, I just say, uh, like maybe around 17. Wow, that's incredible. And yeah. can, Mustafa, do you mind if I ask you, are your parents still alive? Sorry? No. I, no. No, they did, they died in 2012. In the Syrian conflict? Yeah. I'm so sorry. And what, what in terms of your livelihood now, Mustafa... Your bike was stolen. It was, and it's last Friday, listeners. And we put out a we put out a photograph of the bike on Twitter at Joe Liveline and at RTE Liveline. Um, this was Dunleary, the main street, Burger King, just down from McDonald's. Friday uh, around two p.m. Now, have the guardy looked at the CCTV footage? Yes, I uh, went after the guard investigation with me. They asked me what happened. Then after I met after. Uh, and she asked the girls, and she wanted to check in the camera. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is what happened, you know. But I didn't see her anymore after that, you know. But I was uh, looking around that all, you know, for five, ten minutes. And after that, uh, I left, you know. I went to home, you know. No, and I no, I went to home after later on because I was looking for my bike all day. Yeah. And Mustafa, has your bike? What? Since you came to Ireland and became a citizen, and you've, as you say, you've no family. You lost your fa- family in the Syrian uh, yeah. conflict. Um, uh, how have you managed? Have you have you got other work, or have you just been doing Deliveroo and just eat all the time? No, I just I wouldn't do. I was doing just to eat, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but I only started with just eat since March, you know. Okay, and how many days a week would you have to work? Uh, Sometimes uh, five days. If uh, bad. Like, I can work six days if it's very bad, if I didn't make money, you know? Yeah, I understand, yeah. Because sometimes when it rains, I'm kind of like, when you're cycling, if I'm breaking with the bike, I, many times I fall down, you know? Yeah. And have you had accidents on the bike? Yeah, man, like two, two, three times, yeah. And what have your injuries been? Hopefully very trivial, I hope. Sometimes I fall down in my arm, right arm. Yeah. Sometimes I fall down normally. Sometimes I'm okay. Sometimes my leg is hurting me for two, three days. Yeah. This is happening sometimes, you know. And you're renting, you're renting accommodation at the minute. Yes. And that's over five fifty a month for sharing or whatever. Yes. And then I pay, uh, I pay five fifty, but lost that bill. Five fifty for what, Mustafa? 
uh, I pay 550 for for the rent. Yeah. Plus the electricity, you know, I have to pay for that. Yeah, of course, all the extra. And Wi-Fi uh, and everything. <laughs> so you need to earn money. Yes. And what what have you been doing since Friday? Can you borrow a bike? Can you? I can't work on normal bike. You know, I need to have an electric bike because if I like, uh, sometime I get an order in Ballybrack. How I can cycle from Ballybrack? Yeah. Uh, from Ballybrack, from the lift to Ballybrack or Shink or. Uh, Sorry, or Kalini or Doki without no electric bike. You no, know? I can't do, do that. If I did one order, then I will not continue. I will go back home, you know. Yeah. Well, that's Mustafa there. And then Tony was listening to his story and he called Joe. Yes, I'm very sorry to hear what happened to Mustafa, particularly with the tragedy in his life of having to come to Ireland, what happened to his yeah. family, set up a business for himself and then get his bicycle robbed. And the, his livelihood. He's been very yeah. unlucky. I'm, I'm really sorry. So I would be, I'd happily fund replacing an appropriate bicycle for him if you can share my number with him Afterwards, I'll arrange yeah. to do it I'm not yeah. I'm not in the bicycle business and uh, but I I live in Dublin and there's a local bicycle shop across the road here and uh, I okay. would be, be happy to replace him with an appropriate bike to get him on the road again oh that's a magnificent gesture that's a magnificent gesture and I know you've been talking to the crew upstairs Mustafa yeah. so so we we Get you talking to Tony after the program, Mustafa. And as oh, okay. it, Tony is offering offering to buy you a bike. Yes, a I'll, bike. I'll buy him a bike. We have a local bicycle shop across the road here, McDonald's Cycles. Okay. And I, I, if he contacts me, I'll happily bring him there. And okay. he can select one that's appropriate for him and I will fund it for him. Well done. Um, well done. Mustafa, you've you've struck a chord with people. Well done. Thank you. It's... A, it's um. You really have you your 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 story and, and he was very unlucky, guy, yeah. very unlucky with the tragedy that he's had in his life, losing yeah. his family, losing his job, come here, get going in business, and then his means of livelihood taken from him like that. It's yeah. so sad. But and I just you know, like, yeah, I just like when the bike is stolen, you know, I just I ask myself, I don't know what I did to myself with this bike getting stolen, you know. I'm just like something like all what I have, you know. Yeah, it's all you, you know, have. because if when someone when these guys see my bike, you know, I'm just all what I'm thinking how I can support myself and live now. And then yeah. the end of the this month I have to pay the rent, you know. If I didn't work I'm not able to pay the rent, you know. Yeah. Then what I have yeah, to do then. Then Mustafa you know? Mustafa, you didn't do anything wrong. The, whoever stole your bike is the is the person who did did you wrong. And as we as we're hearing, there's a lot of electric bikes being stolen yeah. because they are so valuable. And people are either there's talk of vans, bikes being thrown into the back of a van or whatever in in a couple of seconds. Um, but anyway, yeah. Tony, that's Tony. That's Tony. Do you, I was going to point out that as you said, Tony, the job that Mustafa does is a hard old job. I yes, I don't know how they do it, and uh, the lads and the lassies who do it in in Deliveroo and Just Eat and Uber Eats or whatever. Um, especially yes. in especially in in the weather where well, I know we've had a mild winter generally, but in rain and cold and snow. But uh, Tony, we we. Please God, Joe, this could be a turning point for him, you know, like most things yeah. in life, it's, it's not what happens to you that matters, it's how you cope with them and I, how you cope with what happens to you and I would be very happy to try and help him out. So okay. you sh- share his number with me and yeah, we'll I look forward it. to meeting him. I'll bring him to the local bicycle shop here at McDonald's. Okay. And, and you're, in you Dub- you're in Dublin, Tony? Yeah, I'm in Rackyard okay. Village, yes. Okay, okay. 
And uh, Mustafa, as I say, it wasn't your fault, but uh, Tony gave you a, a, an idea there about getting a tracker for your bike. And I know you have locks and whatever, but you, you momentarily turned your back and the, the bike was was uh, was grabbed. Um, so Mustafa, we will, with your permission, we will give your number to Tony this afternoon and uh, we will give uh, Tony's number to you and you can hopefully meet up and... Um, and sort it out. Okay, okay. No problem, yeah. yeah okay. No problem. Mustafa, Thank you, well, well, condolences on, on the death of your parents in Syria and all the... Maybe, maybe maybe he's got a new grandfather in Dublin now. Oh, Carl, okay. Carl, Carl Tony. Thank you very much. Carl Tony. Thank, Thank you, Mustafa. Okay. You're welcome. Look forward to meeting you. Thank you. Nice one, Tony. From the Live Line with Joe Duffy. Lots of people reassessed their lives when the pandemic came along. Barbara Shanahan changed her career completely and she was telling Ryan Tuberty in the morning about taking those first big steps and what she was doing before the pandemic began. Well, pre-pandemic, I was actually self-employed. I had three small kids, so I was working from home, had a little home office set up and was managing, you know, the children's day to day and... Uh, clients doing digital marketing um, campaigns, things like that. Okay. So very much in the house and sort of, um, you know, just doing day-to-day tasks with the kids and that, yeah. And the nature of your client clientele? Um, well, I was hotels, or sorry, ho- hospitality. So it was bars and restaurants, doing Facebook for them, campaigns like that, and social media, websites. Mm. And along came... Um, and all sort of... And along came COVID, yeah. yeah. And we know the hospitality business have just taken probably more hits than most um, when it comes to yeah. this thing. And Well, I lost I lost all my clients basically overnight. I lost, like, my entire business just went because everything closed. And, of course, that was the end of that, you know. Could you see it falling off the cliff? Oh, God, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, the cliff was bang, there, gone. But thank God, like, the pup payment was there. So at least that was, you know, okay. you weren't left kind of completely rudderless should we say you know all right so you had your you have the three kids uh yeah. there was a slight change of circumstances you moved where did you move then um well i was in no i'm in dublin like yeah. i'm in i'm based in dublin yeah but okay. we spent uh, the pandemic down in west cork so okay. um, we got we got we got stuck down there for a few weeks you could be, um, when everything locked down you could do worse than being stuck in West Cork couldn't you <laughs> but that's I, you know it was a good place to be stuck because yeah. the weather was incredible and it was so quiet and beautiful and it was actually a really nice time to just be together and just kind of take your foot off the pedal a bit so it actually was lovely good and and you find yourself then, you know, the, the payment is fine and some people probably enjoyed that and enjoyed not being at work and some people said, no, I want to be at work. It's driving me mad. I want to do something. I think you fell into yeah. the latter category. And you were, yeah. were you looking around actively or did, did it come out of the skies? Well, at that time, what I what happened was I, I saw this double-decker bus passing by on Griffith Avenue and it had a big sign on it saying uh, looking for female bus drivers. I've seen those ads actually, very striking. So it was like, yes, yeah, so it was like come and have a go at driving the bus and I thought, geez, that looks like fun actually. That's, <laughs> I'm going to do that for the crack. So I just sent in an email and I said, uh, you know, I'm interested in coming to the open day um, which was in Fitzborough Garage there and I went in and that was the start of this journey that I'm on now. What, had you any... Uh, idea as a kid, as a young person, or you know, even as as an adult, uh, that driving a bus might be an option at all or an ambition. To to be honest, no. I mean, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would or could drive a massive double decker bus. It was never really on my remit. But I mean, I remember, like, I grew up in Marino, and I still live here now with the kids that go to the local schools and. Yeah. 
I remember as a kid, like being on the top circle there and asking the bus driver for bus rolls. That was a big thing. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> or these, that was is, where you... is this a conductor's uh, roll of paper, is it? Yeah, no. you'd ask yeah. for the bus rolls and yeah. we were mad for these bus rolls and they'd throw out a bus roll and you'd be, yay, you'd be so delighted. Like the bus drivers were so sound and yeah. they always were happy and like you always respected the bus. The bus was like to be respected. And yeah. I remember like the 24 route coming around Marino. I remember the imps and they had the city imps but yes. then they went back to Double Decker because <laughs> it was too, too busy. And like you always respected, I always had great respect for Dublin bus and for yeah. the, the, the drivers and that. So... Yeah, but I never in my wildest dreams thought I could drive a double-decker bus. Okay, so and, but I am. And Ryan asked about that first open day and who showed up for it. All women, because it was specifically, they were trying to recruit women at that stage. It was a specific sort of female recruitment day. So you went and you actually got to go driving the bus around the yard, around like the bus depot yard, which was great fun. We were all kind of squealing and taking photos <laughs> of each other. And, you know, that was great fun. And there was a guy, one of the guys, you know, it's, they've got the dual control. So, you know, you can't crash into stuff. And, and then they brought us up to the comms room, so the communication room, which yeah. is up in uh, in Broadstone depot where they control everything. And you can see the whole city and it's really impressive. You know, it's a much bigger operation than you'd ever think from getting on the bus every day going into town, you know. Yeah. And what struck me was that everyone was there donkey's years. They were there 18, 20, 45 mm. years. Like they were there forever. Nobody left. Yeah, it's a good and sign. And they were also... And they were all so happy. They were so happy. They were cheerful. They were having the crack with each other. And they were like, oh, you know, we, I drove the bus for 15 years and now I came up here and now I'm in charge of this and this is the part. And I thought, that's amazing. So there's pr- career progression, you know. You can move through the company and stay with the company. And yeah. a few of them were like, oh, you know, we never left. And it's a great, jo- great company, great job. You love it, you know. And that was really encouraging. And um, just chatting with, just I just picked everyone's brain. I was chatting with everyone, finding out as much as I could because then I really thought this is actually a viable option. I could actually work for this company. This is like, and that's basically the only job I went for after COVID hit and everything. This is the yeah. only job I went for, and I went for. It. I really like got into it, and I said I'm going to get this. Um, you know, what, and what, the process is. Yeah, yeah. no, but actually, no, I will. I will ask a quick question if I may, which yes. is it's it's is uh, just dying to know the 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 size of the steering wheel. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then the bulk of what's above you and behind you. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to sit there for a minute in my head going, I'd, I'd be freaked out by the enormity of it all. I know. It, like, it is a bit scary. But the thing is that the training is so good that, you know, you're completely protected for the first. Your training is seven weeks. You're brought in at the start and you're on the big red bus. And it's literally like a massive learner sign. Like, so everybody knows this person doesn't know how to drive a bus, so be careful, you know? Yeah. So you don't leave the yard for the first few days. You're just going around the yard, practicing stopping, pulling in, getting the sense of the size of it because you have to have your license anyway. So you have to have your B license anyway and have a minimum of two years driving experience anyway. Yes. Um, and obviously no endorsements and all that. So you have to, you know, be a competent driver. And then you're driving around the yard and then you're out on the road and you're just, it's all very steady. There's only three, well, at, during COVID when we were trained, there was only two of us and an instructor. So you're getting a lot of driving time and all the all your training is given. Um, you're completely covered. You have a bad day. It's okay. They're so nice. They're so kind. Like, and they're so, they understand how daunting it can be. And, you know, if you don't know how to do it, you just stop and start again. And it's, it's actually really good. So it's like seven weeks of full training. Yeah. So they don't let you go into it unless, they don't let you out unless you're absolutely... Yes. Competent and able. Like, and the training is excellent. Like, it's world class. Like, and they've won awards for it and everything. And I really felt confident going to my depot 
um, when I was finished my training. I passed my test first time and you go up and they walk you... Thank you. They walk you through that and you do that up in, we did it up uh, just off Glass Nevin there. And they bring you around the test routes all the way. So you're doing test routes, test routes the whole time mm. before you do your test. So, you know, it's familiar and you know the corners and you know the curbs and the roundabouts and, and stuff like that. So it's very much geared towards passing the test and then training you how to be a Dublin bus driver. And then you do a huge customer service course, which is really, really good. That was really interesting. And that was in town. So like it's such a great buzz because you're there like in the middle of town and you're doing your classes then going off for lunch and all your lunch is paid for. You get lunch to training for free. Um, they give you a bus pass straight away for free so you can get to and from like you have your bus pass from day one. You know, so it's 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 fantastic. You, like yeah, I really you, enjoyed you, the you training. You sound like you're really happy with your new world. I'm, I'm enjoying your enthusiasm for it, I have to say. So, I am. Right, so do, you have a, you. Do, you, do you have a route now? Is that, Are you a bus driver? I am officially a professional yeah, bus driver, Ryan. That's Barbara Shanahan from the Ryan Tiberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, mental health and the effect of the pandemic on anxiety and mood disorders. Next month, we'll see a start into the third year of COVID in Ireland. And we all know the toll that has taken on our health and hospital services. But what impact has this had on our anxiety levels and general mood disorders? Well, I'm joined on the line now by Dr. Dara Hume, a GP in Cavan Town. Good morning, Dr. Hume. Good morning, Claire. Good to talk to you again. And before we talk about all of that, we're seeing a glimmer of hope in that the Omicron surge might have peaked and then be coming down the other side. And we're also hearing that restrictions might be eased. But what's your take on it? What are you seeing in your surgery now? Well, there's been a marked reduction, Claire. We have almost no COVID referrals now. We'd only two yesterday. Um, of referrals and, and a lot less calls of people with complications from COVID. Obviously, people are still getting ill um, and uh, are having symptoms, but certainly we're not seeing the complications we would have seen with Delta or the other variants. So certainly, yes, the numbers are, are massively decreasing. And I think um, so many families either had COVID since Christmas or were isolating. I mean, the numbers, my goodness, the number of the referrals we did after Christmas was unbelievable and in, in both in practice and in, in, or in out of Ireland. So, yes, that has massively decreased. So there's a bit of breathing space now, which I'm sure you're thankful for. And we want to talk to you about the impact that COVID has had on lots of people. And mood disorders is where we want to go, Dara, mm. because for most people, of course, the first port of call is their GP. So what are you seeing? What, how much of an increase in those types of consultations are you seeing in the practice? Yeah, thanks, Claire. And I think it's a wonderful topic to have brought up for the simple reason that there are, the only word I can use is an explosion in mood disorders. Now, I use the term mood disorders because often it's mixed an anxiety and depressive picture. It's not always a clear cut one or the other. So certainly the good thing is people are a lot more self-aware. And I think social media, we have a lot to thank social media for that. That people are saying, Do you know, actually, I don't feel I'm not in good form. I'm not I'm, I'm suffering from anxiety or depressive symptoms or whatever, I think I might go in to talk to my GP. But certainly since COVID, oh my goodness, the numbers have just shot up. I mean, in a, in a typical year, uh, and obviously we deal with this all the time. This is what GPs do. And you don't need to be a specially trained GP to, to diagnose any of this. We're just regular GPs. However, certainly if, if we struggle to treat somebody with a mood disorder, we would refer to psychiatry for additional help. And in a, in a typical year, I was, would probably refer two or three, maybe a year. And now I'm referring maybe one to two per month. Um, I'm seeing new cases every week. 
whereas before I might have only seen maybe new cases one or two, one maybe one or two per month. So that's a massive increase, Claire. Certainly that's what I'm, is. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wonder, can you pinpoint what it is? Is it fear of becoming ill? Is it because people's lives have become much smaller? I mean, what is causing this, do you know? Well, yeah, I suppose it's a combination of factors, but the two main triggers for anxiety are fear and uncertainty. You know, and fear of COVID, fear of transmitting COVID, fear of making people unwell, and then the uncertainty of this world. I mean, in our practice, every week, I, I don't plan a week ahead because you just don't know what's, what's coming next and the yeah. guidelines are changing. And so, you know, and that's us who, who, who are very much at the, at the helm of things. So people who aren't, who are responding to NEFID, responding to the government, responding to the guidelines, they don't know what's happening from maybe from day to day or from week to week. And certainly, so uncertainty is, is a huge trigger. Also, social isolation, the normal supports that we would have, our friends, our family, our social gatherings, they were all pretty much taken away in, at the start of the first lockdown. So, you know, people have had to deal with um, struggles on their own or with a limited support system. So there are a number of factors and obviously different age groups are affected differently. And Dr. Dara spoke about who is presenting with mental health struggles. Commonest age cohort would probably be, I would say, teens and 20s. Um, so again, why is that? Uh, this is only my own, my own interpretation of it, I feel, is that they're missing the social gatherings that they would have had. Teens are meant to congregate. They're meant to hang out. They go to clubs. They're hanging out after football matches. That's what they do when they chat and or in school. So in, in the early stages, they weren't in school. They weren't at all those gatherings. So it's, it's hard for them to have had that, that um, support system, we'll say. The 20s, a lot of them were working from home. They may have been homeschooling. Again, their social activities were curtailed. So I think that's maybe why that group are are, are more affected than others, you know. Yeah. I know plenty of people in their 20s may have started a, at their first job during the pandemic mm. and have met their colleagues a handful of times, which mm-hmm. is just bizarre by anybody's mm. standards. I know you said that GPs can diagnose this. It's no problem. You don't have to be specially trained. It's part mm. of what you do. But how well equipped are GP surgeries for this type of patient? Because I would imagine that in comparison to the other issues that come across your desk, for this, mm. you need time. You need to be able to spend time with the person coming in. Absolutely. And time is a GP's enemy, unfortunately. But look, you know, when somebody comes in in trouble, it's a very rewarding consultation, Claire, because someone comes in, you know, by their demeanour, their their smile is a bit off, their their walk maybe isn't isn't sprightly, maybe poor eye contact before they even speak. So and I suppose um, you just you give the time and it's it's terribly rewarding to see a person walk out a little bit taller feeling, you know, I've handed this problem over. My GP is going to help me. I have a plan. And I think, yeah. you know, uh, if, if it's OK, I might just run through a typical sort of plan I do with people, if that's all right. Do, please, um, yeah. Because I think it's hugely helpful for any mood disorders. And I think it's something we should all do. And it's, I think the most important thing is to look at your support system. So I would always feel that, you know, people are very lucky if they have one person that they really are 100% themselves with. And we hope that's a spouse or partner. May not always be. Um, if you have that person embracing and tell them, look, I, it's great that I can tell you everything. But a lot of people don't have that. So let's look at our middle support groups. Our middle support group, we've about five to ten people, I feel, who we trust, who know us really well, but don't know all our secrets. And that's often maybe a best friend or a neighbour or a colleague or, um, a, you know, some um, a sibling. And But what I want people to do is look at those five to ten people, name them in their head. 
but then see what are each of them really good at. So one might be really good at work-related stuff. One might be really good at financial. Someone else might be great at relationship advice, uh, etc. So often when people run into trouble with mood, it's that they, they're, they're afraid to ask for help or they're a private sort of a person. So the ideal is to ask for help from the person that you need help for in that area. So nobody needs to see the real vulnerable you except me basically. Um, so your support people, you can divide out the load between them. And that support group doesn't really change as we get older unless they move away. And then obviously with Skype, etc. and WhatsApp, they're still there. So, And then our third group of people are, you know, the people we meet in the street or we chat about to the weather or the neighbour over the fence, that sort of thing. They're not people we share our innermost thoughts with. But that core group, it's hugely important to tap that support system you have. Because I feel the key to good mental health is to Share your thoughts. Share what's in that. Get it out. Get the business out of your head. Ask for help uh, and have good people in your world. Have people around you that make you feel good about yourself and gradually push away the people that pull, pull, pull all the time, you know. Mm -hmm. You you, uh, talk about one young man in his 20s who you met, I know, who had all of the symptoms of anxiety and, and the release and the relief that he got was when you told him that you can't cure anxiety, you have to manage it. Isn't that right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, you know, people are born are warriors. Um, my, I'm, I'm not a warrior. I'm very lucky. I've had to learn how to understand anxiety because it doesn't come naturally to me as a person. As a doctor, obviously, we're trained, but as a person, it doesn't come naturally to me. But certainly, when I said that to this particular person, he went, "Oh my God!" He said, "That's light bulb moment. I've always tried to suppress my anxiety. Now I'll just, I'll embrace that I'm a warrior and say, do you know what? When I find myself worrying excessively." about anything I'm going to ask for help That's Dr Dara Hume from Today with Claire Byrne And on the live line remembering the Reardons on RTE TV Contact by a number of people uh, noting that it's the 60th anniversary it was on New Year's Eve effectively uh, just on the cusp of the New Year in uh, 1962 uh, that RT television began and after many, many, many much-loved programmes, people have been asking us about the Reardons and one of them was Michael uh, in Dublin. And Michael, you want to know why the Reardons isn't repeated? Yeah, good, uh, good afternoon and Happy New Year. It's not too you late. Too, yeah, you of course, never too late, yeah. And uh, no, I tell you, the Reardons were started in 1965 and it finished in 1979. It was filmed down in uh, Lee's Town, Kilkenny, Dunbar, County Mead. Okay. But getting back to the, I liked it. I thought, like, well, you, for me... You, it, Michael, sorry, will you explain to people what was the Reardons? What made it so... I think it was part? family values. I think it was family life. I think it was about a farm because a lot of people in Dublin, I'm not saying far from being backward we are, but I think we didn't really understand that farming... You know, what, mm-hmm. what way people lived down the country way back then, you know. And as I said, but this, this brought it to life. And I tell you, more than anything, more than anything, I think you, your whole family could watch it. The soaps today, you don't know whether you're coming or going. There's, <laughs> you know, know there's death. You know, I mean, one minute, I mean, I'm not even going, I'm, I'm not okay, even going, I'm not even going down that road with Emmerdale. Look, look after your blood pressure. We have for, to look after our own programme too, okay. of course. Okay, so, so the, the Reardon was on, what you say, from 60, 1965 to 1979, 14 years, every Sunday yeah. night. 
Yeah, but the thing I liked about it was there was one character in it, and honest to God, there's a character in every town. I think, I, I, I really do think characters came after her. Uh, I think her name was, well, Minnie. Minnie Brennan. Minnie Brennan. And honest to God, you didn't need the news of the world or the papers or the even Herald. She knew everything. <laughs> it was just the, way, it's just the way life was. Yeah. Like, if you want to know something down the road. But you see, there's a Minnie Brennan and a Hilda Hoggins in every county. Yeah. Yeah, and every even town. today, like even even in reality, even in real life, you'll always get somebody. You know, my father's mom had a sister, and she lived in Duke Street. And honest to God, if if there was no one she did not know, well, then she knew nothing. She knew everybody. We used to go up there as a boy. So in a way, she did remind me of Minnie Brennan. Her name was Aunt Josie, but she did remind me of Minnie Brennan because she knew everything. It's very strange, but. But the fam, I think it was more for me, and I remember it very well. Of course, I do. But for me, it really opened. It opened a whole new world of what the country life was like. Yeah. Well, that's Michael. Then Joe reminded us what the Reardons were all about with this clip. You look at that fella, Benji. Yes, ma'am. What are you mucking yourself up for? I just thought you were supposed to be going into Kilkenny. Well, so I am. Well, will you come here and get yourself cleaned up for heaven's sake? Tom won't be long, Minnie. He just went over to get Eamon. Oh, sure, poor Eamon. As if his accident wasn't enough. To have poor Riley going sick now, too. Is there any word of it? I should know how they are, Minnie. They don't tell you anything, but she's not very strong, oh. you know. You can see that. Mm. Minnie, it looks like rain. Would you ever mind coming oh, home? I bring you up in the wash. Yes. Thanks, Minnie. So many would well, know, well, there you know, what does that Well, what does that tell you, Joe? She there you are. I mean, after all these years now, so. <laughs> Somebody, somebody, some of them are passed away now, Lord rest them. But you know what? They left a great legacy. And you think, I mid, like, no, if, 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 just, just to explain again to younger listeners, in that clip, you heard Minnie, Minnie Brennan. This is yeah. from the Reardons. Our name was Annie Dalton, a very formidable actress and, and oh, a yeah. theatre company manager. But Minnie, the, the, she would have to know or else find out very quickly what was going on in the town. In other words, if a new car arrived in the town... Yeah, she would know. She would, she would have to find out where the car was from, who was in If a new priest visited right. the town, or even in that case... Would, yeah. Do you know what, if you don't mind, sorry for cutting in, uh, there is a mini Brennan in every town around the world. Even in this day and age? Even, even, even today, to, uh, 2022... Brennan. And then Dave Costello called Joe with his memories of the real life Minnie Brennan, his aunt Annie Dalton. She was my mother's sister. Okay, and did you did you meet her? Oh, many times. She was at my wedding. <laughs> okay, and and her name was Annie Dalton. Uh, well, if you want to go back, she's from Carlow. Okay. She came from a fairly large family. My grandfather was the usher in the cinema in Carlow. Okay. And uh, there were three sisters. There was a Judy who uh, worked on the cruise ships, and that's a long time ago. Okay. Um, and Annie, uh, who, as you know, it became Minnie in the Reardons. And my mother, um, Kathleen Mulhall, later Costello, she uh, uh, married my father, and they had a road show of the Bohemian Players, Bill Costello's Bohemian Players. Wow. And Annie organised that, the fit-ups going around, going around the country. No, she well, she had her own show originally, but okay. she married a, a man called Louis Dalton, okay. who was, um, I'm sure you know, a very famous playwright. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and um, she uh, was with him when he had his own road show going around the country. Okay. A very uh, uh, busy man. Uh, they later split up and she went with John Cowley. Yeah. And um, John and her ran their own road show. One particular one was uh, uh, one show they read was A Priest in the Family, which was um, uh, a show about the younger son of the farming communities and other communities in Ireland being geared and pushed into the priesthood. Uh, and uh, this was very controversial at the time. This is okay. 1950s. Okay. She had a big uh, Ferrari with the Bishop of Killaloo down right. in Killaloo. Uh, at the same time, there was a knock at the door one day, and somebody asked uh, for a job, and John said to her, what did the chap here looking for a job, Annie? He said, no, no, she said, he's got, uh, we're full up at the moment, take his name and address. Uh-huh. His name was Richard Harris from Limerick. <laughs> Whatever became <laughs> That's it. True story. Yeah. Later brought to Richard's um, uh, attention in Linan in, in in Connemara when they were making The Field where John played the uh, the auctioneer in the yeah. movie The Field. Tom Tom Reardon as we knew him in the Reardons. There was John Cowley and he was his uh, fictional on-screen wife uh, was Maura Deedy and, um, but his, li- his wife in real life was Minnie Brennan, That's Annie correct. Dalton. I just want to say, John, um, uh, Joe, John Cowley was um, a, a gentle man. Yeah. Uh, there are many people, I'm 74 years of age now, there are many people i met in my life, um, but there are people who you remember, I think Kay Bourne would be mm. one you, you would uh, uh, remember very well. But John Cowley is one that I remember extremely well. He was a gentle person, a lovely man. And the, the other thing I remember, Dave, now that you mention John Cowley, he, he was, even though, I don't know what his background was, obviously in the Reardon's The Farming Story, but he was a national campaigner against hair coursing and yeah. blood sports. That's correct. Which was incredible. And he got severely criticised. I can imagine. He used to nail a, um, a thing over. He, he lived in, uh, in outside Navan, and uh, he had a farm out there, small community. And he used to um, a little field. He had he had a tree on it, and he used to nail up um, uh, council against blood sports. Uh, and the yeah. uh, uh, the tree one not one morning was cut down. He found it. They actually cut the tree down on him. So he was uh, he was castigated for um, for his stance against the uh, and a very principled man. Now tell us about your Aunt Annie. What was she like in real life? Oh, she was a character. Okay. I mean, uh, Michael there in front of you, you remember some of it. I remember, if you want to remember one of them, uh, the two of them, Minnie and, and Myra Didi standing outside the uh, the chapel in, in Dunboyne. She was a, a great character. In real life, she was very testy. You wouldn't want wow. to, she didn't suffer fools easily. She ran her own show for many years and was uh, a very, very strong character in her own right. And did she make a living out of the Reardons, Dave? Oh, she did, yeah. No, well, they were close. not very, none of them were very happy about the, the way it was finished up. It was very, very badly done by RTE. Yeah. Uh, but um, um, she made her living uh, from all her life, uh, running a show and working with people. They lived in the North Circular Road in Dublin for many okay. years and they got bit parts. You see her popping up in many movies like yeah. Young Cassidy and various oh, other wow. movies. Uh, and there's she, a great one because, uh, done many years ago, black and white one with uh, Cyril Cusack and some of those great old characters from the Dublin stage uh, um, about a train. You might remember I have a fantastic story. The last whistle stop. Really funny one. I have it on video here. Okay. Now just to I'm, remind people that, that uh, Minnie Brennan and indeed Tom Cowley and indeed the wonderful Tom Hickey died last year. Uh, they were They were our celebrities. Well, let me put it this way to you. She opened pubs 
Yes. Fates, Jim she Carroll, George, I have a, and John, all over the country. Well, I have a list here from Colum, Colum Keane, formerly of this parish, uh, wrote a great article in the Ireland's Own about uh, Minnie Brennan, Annie Dalton. Her public appearances, wrote Colm, drew huge crowds. She launched festivals, opened supermarkets, judged competitions, ranging from a glamorous grandmother competition in Old Lyon County, Carlow, to selecting the winner of the Hairy Leg competition at the Baileyborough Festival in County Cavan. She even turned up at the Shamrock Lounge in Kilross County Tipperary for a stint in cabaret. Her arrival in Limerick with Tom a real-life husband, but another star from the Reardons, for the opening of a frozen food shop created quite a store. Thousands turned out to greet them. Tom drove through Limerick City on his tractor, followed, yeah. followed by Minnie in a pony and trap. They were given a tumultuous reception by a vast throng of admirers. A local newspaper report, shows of autograph books were signed, and the guardie had to be called in to control the crowds. Yes. That's how big she was. That's Joe remembering Annie Dalton, a.k.a. Minnie Brennan, with her nephew, Dave Costello. And on the Ryan Tupperty Show, a former guest from The Late Late Show, Steve-O Timothy, was telling Ryan about setting himself the challenge of a lifetime. I, I Just to remind people, if I may, um, we spoke on The Late Late Show last year and... Uh, not to be glib about it, but we spoke about your anxiety and alcohol and the motorbike crash that led to the death of your friend and left you paralysed. And we're now 17 years on. And thank you, by the way, for that uh, interview last year. I really appreciate it because... No problem. Thank you. No, I, I hope you got uh, the, the the right response to it on the, uh, after. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The reason I wanted to talk to you was today, because we often say we, we like to keep in touch with uh, people we speak to, whether it's here or on the TV, and, and um, see how they're getting on. And... I noticed new developments in your world. Can you talk us through them? Yeah, I suppose uh, I was thinking about it for a while. But I suppose when I when I turned forty this Christmas, I was like, I I want to push myself and I want to try and get back walking again. So it was playing on my mind for a few months, and then yeah. turning forty kind of kicked me in gear. I suppose because the way I was thinking, if I let myself go another ten years, like I did in the preceding ten years, will the chance? have passed and I live my life regretting not giving it everything I'd rather do it try it and fail than look back when I'm 15, 60 and regret not giving it mm. a go mm. And uh, what sort of mobility do you have uh, now anyway? Uh, I wouldn't be able to walk too far on crutches and I wouldn't be able to stand for a long period of time so I'd use the chair and the crutches Okay, so what is this? It gives a sense of the scope of your ambition, the reality of it, and what you hope to achieve. Uh, I suppose I want to. I want to get up and walk, and like I don't like. I'm not under. I'm a realist. I'm not, I'm not under any illusion that you know, in a year's time, I'll be doing the hundred and ten meter hurdles around them. Yeah. But if I could be more confident on my feet, if I could walk maybe with a cane or yeah. one crutch or something like that, so it, it's it's going to be. It's going to be tough and it's going to be rough, but I suppose announcing it puts me under extra pressure and appearing mm. on your shows, <laughs> yeah. which is which will keep me going. You know what I mean? Because it keeps the, the heat on me. That's it exactly. It's a bit like when we were chatting with Charlie Bird recently, and 
we said we'll, we'll climb Crow Patrick and you can see it, it, it gave him another reason to keep the flag flying and keep going and now that they, exactly. as, as you say the spotlight's on you now because you have put the word out you, I think you turned 40 on Christmas Day is that right the day itself yeah, the, Christmas the, day, yeah. this is biblical Steve-O so the, this, the, <laughs> this, is it. this has to happen and when you put the announcement out to saying I want to walk uh, again in a meaningful way a more meaningful way if you like than, than, than what you might describe as it is now um, what response did you get and from where? Uh, it was incredible all over the country all over the UK people in America offers to come down to normal physiotherapists and OTs and things and people just general general people as well just going uh, I'm not a, a trainer or anything but I give it a go or if you ever want to exercise at me gyms uh, clinic then in Limerick on in touch with me to do scans with me and do strength testing to see right. what's my base level so that's what we done then last Friday Okay so you got a very uh, a very uh, a big and favourable positive and kind reaction from people and that brought you to Limerick on Friday for what? Uh, uh, strength testing and scans just to see me walking on a treadmill and basically get a level of where my strength is at at the moment so I kind of confirmed what I knew which was that my right side is very, very weak. But the most important thing about that is that my muscles are engaging. That's so good they're weak news. and barely non-existent, but they're engaging. And that's the huge thing because it, it's nearly impossible to go from zero muscle engagement to build a muscle than to build on something that's already existent. I'm trying to get a, a, a handle on what it must have been like to, to, to drive to Limerick for those tests, knowing that the news could have gone either way. Oh yeah, it was a panicky wreck all that week. I actually got sick the day before. Did you? <laughs> I was so nervous about it, yeah. But like I was going I was going to battle on anyway. But it's nice to get that. It's nice to get that confirmation that all muscles are engaging. Some are very, very weak and will take a lot of work. Like he didn't he didn't lessen how much effort this was gonna take. But he did just say like they are engaging, so there's hope. And Ryan asked Steve about the changes he's made to his lifestyle. Well, I started on the exercise bike straight away. I started using the Terra bands straight away and I've changed my diet straight away. Thanks to my girlfriend, Roxy, who was uh, <laughs> behind me every step of the way. Excuse the horrible pun, but yeah, she was like, you need to start eating properly. Okay. So thankful, I'm th- very thankful to her as well for standing by me, I suppose, and which is going in this uh, challenge, which is going to be tough at times. How, how bad your 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 diet? What are, what are you talking about? I like it wasn't the worst, but I would eat a lot of takeaways and I would eat a lot of like potatoes and pears and stuff. So they're they're all out now. Okay, so they're you're, all gone. Now. You're a new man. I I'm a new man. <laughs> An unhappy man, <laughs> but a new Friday, man. Anyway, since Friday <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, early days, yeah. Early days. Uh, is there a time frame here, Steve-O? Uh, well, when I was talking to the guy in Limerick in SCE scans, he said to me, "What would you think?" And I said, "Well, I'd say." I won't see kind of any improvement or any, you know, improvement in strength for about six to 12 months. And he goes, well, I was thinking the same thing. Okay. So it'll be <clears throat> the hard period, I suppose, will be for that zero to six, zero to nine months. Because if you're not seeing any improvement, you might want to give up, which is human nature. Mm. So I'll have to push on through that and make sure that, look, keep going. I need to obviously... Whoever's going to be training me will have to give me a kick up the proverbial now and again. And what sort of um, signs would there be to show you that things are going in the right direction? 
just <coughs> I suppose general things like uh, more stamina, being able to stand for for longer periods, feel more more confident on my legs. Like I'll I'll know anyway. Like I started doing the TheraBand and just sitting on the bed and separating my legs, so opening and closing my hips. Mm-hmm. And even in the last few days, like I I felt. I, I don't know, maybe it's just placebo, but I think I felt an improvement in that. Yeah. So I can feel the muscle engaging. Well, so that's, you, to me, that's good. As you say, placebo or, or, or reality, even placebo can be a good thing sometimes. For oh, you, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. For the soul. Yeah. Even if you understand it's a placebo, a placebo can still work. Yeah. That's the beauty, beauty of it. I think so. And you're going to document all of this? Yeah, we're hoping to have, basically, we're kind of on the hunt at the moment for a production company or someone that would be willing to take it on because we just feel it'd be, it'd be a good, yeah. I suppose, thing to give people hope out there and obviously covering me and covering what I kind of uh, think will be a few breakdowns and things. And obviously then we're going to go around the country and meet other people that may be going through similar things and meet sports people, well-known sports people that might have went through over their own injury and it's how they great, got it's through a great, it. It's a great documentary waiting to happen. We hope. We yeah, hope. Yeah, well, hopefully somebody listening in maybe might uh, give you an, a, a call and, and say, look, we'll have a look into that. I know that in the past you raised uh, €60,000 for the Irish Wheelchair Association. Well done on that, by the way. Thank you, thank you. And uh, I love that you, that the, the, the bus you got for them it was named after your mother. Yeah, that was that was unbelievable. I still get quite emotional about it, but it's it's just a lovely thing for our memory. Why was that so important to you? Uh, just because, like any of the charity things I've done, I've done two things for the IWS. So I've done the boxing, wheelchair boxing, yeah. which we raised about 40 grand, and then I've done the, the cycle for 60. So, and my mother was in, <clears throat> my mother was a wheelchair user. Mm-hmm. So, and I just remember how good the Irish Wheelchair Association were to her. So it was just something I always wanted to do. And then when they the name a bus in her honour and things for the charity work and stuff, I was just like, yeah, nice. thank you. Nice, <laughs> so yeah. No, that's a nice thing to do. That's And the Avalon Timothy is serving serving people proudly now around the country. So that's, that, yeah. that, it's, I'm so glad to mention the, the Irish Wheelchair Association because they do sterling work. There's no doubt about it. Your, your Instagram account, which is such a, which is some crack uh, at Sir Steve O. Timothy official. People can follow along there if they want to see how you're getting on and watch your progress. That's Steve O. Timothy from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, the Winter Olympics and two people that might be flying the flag for Ireland. Cross-country skier Thomas Maloney-Westgard and luge competitor Elsa Desmond. So Elsa, I want to start with you because there are some people listening and I'm going to put myself in this category who are not overly familiar with what a luge is. We've seen a little bit of it on the telly, but will you just explain it to us exactly what it is, how it all works? Yeah, of course. So we are on the same track as the bobsled, which I think most people are familiar with the bobsled track. Um, But we are a one or two person sled. I personally just do singles. So I'm on a one person sled lying on my back, going feet first down the hill at speeds up to about 140 kilometres an hour. So it's hurtling down an icy chute on what looks like a drinks tray. Effectively, yeah. (laughs) How How did you first become interested in this sport? Um, I saw it on the television um, watching the Winter Olympics as a kid and thought it just looked amazing and then sort of spent a lot of years 
contacting various people, trying to get into it. And then as a teenager, I managed to try it. And from my first run, I knew I was going to continue because it's, it's a lot of fun. That was it. You were, you were sold from the first attempt. How do you steer it, Elsa? Um, so it's it's quite complicated. You use your shoulders, you use head movements, you have handles, um, but it's not like a steering wheel, the handles. You use very small movements on the handles. And then you have what are sort of a candy cane shaped runners underneath the sled um, and your lower legs go on those and you can use those as well. Gosh, it sounds very uh, complicated. Your involvement in sport, though, didn't begin with this. What other sports had you done at high levels in the past? Um, I've done lots of sports in my life. I've been very lucky. I did county rugby and county level at um, hockey as well. And I did quite a lot of swimming as well when I was younger. And Thomas, you're a cross-country skier. I was looking at some cross-country skiing videos this morning. It's fine when you're going down, right? When you're skiing down the hill. It's not so much yeah. fun when you're going back up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it's an endurance sport. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have to give everything you have uh, on the uphills and on the flats. But, and you finally get some rest uh, on the downhill parts. Um, but yeah, we, we still go at around maybe 60 kilometers per hour downhill and uh, it's not that much to balance on with those two tiny skis. But mm. uh, yeah, of course, it's, it's a, it is a tough sport. And when you're going down, I, I get the impression from watching that there's a lot of tension in your body. You know, you really have to focus on your balance and your steering. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, with uh, you're almost up on your maximum uh, pulse uh, heart rate, so uh, it is uh, it is uh, quite hard. <laughs> so, what events are you hoping to take part in in Beijing? Uh, I'm hoping to take part in three events: uh, one 15k, uh, one 30k, and the last 50k. So, yeah, it's very long uh, long distances. Do you have a favorite? Uh, I would say the 15k is my favorite since uh, I prefer uh, one um, one more than the other. Uh, I prefer the classic skiing because uh, it's two different uh, types of style. Uh, it's classic and skates and I've always been better at classic. So that's that's my main mm-hmm. goal for sure. And you live and you grew up in Norway. So this kind of endurance skiing, is that something that most Norwegians grow up doing? Yeah, uh, it is. It's uh, the national sport in Norway. So uh, it's uh, it's just like uh, GA in Ireland and hurling. So uh, it's uh, it's a national sport here. And uh, they say that Norwegians are born with skis. So uh, it's it's quite a normal thing to do. <laughs> and Claire asked about their family connections to Ireland. Uh, you started with Team GB, Elsa. Tell us about your family connections with Ireland and how you are come you now are representing this country. Yeah, so I'm through my father's side. Um, my grandparents on that side uh, were from Ireland. My grandfather was from Cork. Um, my grandmother was from Cavan. So as a kid, we used to go over to Castle Rahan as a kid um, in the summers and see my Uncle Jim. Um, and so we had strong connections with Ireland right from when I was really young. And it, it seemed an obvious decision to sort of move over when the time was right. Mm-hmm. And the time was right. There was a change of coaching staff, wasn't there, with Team GB and it didn't suit you. But you had to go through a lot in order to compete for Ireland, is that fair to say? 
Yeah, so so obviously being Irish, it was very easy from that side of things. But the the challenge was Ireland didn't have any history in the sport, really. We had one athlete, I think, in the 90s. And so there was no Luge Federation. So we had to found a company and then the Luge Federation from there. So it took probably about 18 months from start to finish to set up the Federation to allow me to compete. And when people get in touch with the Federation, they get a response back from from you. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> You're it, are you? Um, my family do help me a little bit, um, but most of the day-to-day running is by me, yeah. And Thomas, your own connection to Ireland, why did you want to represent Ireland in the cross-country skiing for the Winter Olympics? Uh, so first of all, my uh, mom is from Ireland. She grew up in uh, Dunmore in uh, County Galway, which is more known for footballers than uh, cross-country skiers, for sure. Uh, and uh, I always had this dream of uh, competing for Ireland since I was a little child, actually, because uh, Norway will always uh, have number one and uh, rec- have a great recruitment in uh, cross-country skiing. But uh, I've always dreamed about being the first uh, competitive skier for Ireland and, uh, yeah, to, to try and get Ireland up there in cross-country skiing. So that's that's been my dream, really. I'm sure you have a great support base too, have you, in Galway? Yeah, I have. I mean, uh, the, the family was the, there uh, in, in the last Olympics in Pyeongchang. Um, so it was uh, it was quite fantastic, really, uh, that they made the effort to travel so far. And uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm sure they would have loved being in Beijing too. But of course, it's uh, really hard. The world is not easy uh, <laughs> during this time so uh, but uh, yeah no they've been absolutely fantastic in supporting me And Elsa people will have heard you saying there at the beginning the speeds that you can reach when you're on the luge did you say 135 kilometres an hour as you're you're coming through the icy chute? Yes around that 120 to 140 depending on the track That's extremely dangerous isn't it? It is it is a little bit but most of the time, like, you don't get hurt. You just sort of flip onto your face, slow down and stop. <laughs> um, your first big race representing Ireland, Elsa, what was that like? When was that? So that was the European Championships, which was last January because I had to take a year off competition when I was changing nations. And um, just getting me to the start line was a challenge because we were a new federation. We didn't really know what we were doing. And there was lots of sort of administrative challenges that appeared in the 24 hours before the race. So just being on the start line was such a big thing. And then it was an okay race. I didn't do amazing. I didn't do terribly. I finished 27th in the Europeans. Um, but it was just so exciting to be to be making history and representing Ireland as the first woman in my sport. Elsa Desmond and Thomas Maloney-Westgard from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself, till next time.